Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific show for you today including sky-high gas prices. That's coming up at the bottom of this hour. The temperature outside is not the only thing on the rise in B.C. Gas prices also going up, up, and away. We've got the latest on that for you on the show today. But first, we start the program today with B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Uh, Hot day. Holy mackerel, eh? It really is a hot one, and I want to get your take on that heat wave, actually, and some of the pressures it's putting on the system. But let let me start first with the COVID update that you presented yesterday. Encouraging numbers once again. Where are we at right now with the falling case count? Well, over the weekend, that's over three days, we had 145 cases. We have 175, 107 people, I should say, in hospital, and we're seeing declining test positivity, such that in the Fraser Health Authority, test positivity is about 1.7%. And you'll recall a time not that long ago when it was 11%. So we've seen a significant reduction in cases as we've increased immunization. And yesterday it was 78% of all adults with dose 1, 77% of all those eligible uh, with dose 1, and of course a growing number with dose 2 as well. Okay, are we... Will we move to stage three of the reopening plan as scheduled on this Thursday, July 1st? Well, the trajectory is there, and that announcement will be made and probably live on CKNW at 1.30 today by the Premier. Uh, what we've seen, and you'll recall when we moved from step one to step two, there were a number of criteria we had to meet from step two to step three, more criteria to meet. And yesterday what we said is those criteria have been met, and so um, an announcement will be made today about step three at 1.30. Okay, what are some of the big changes British Columbians could start to see starting Thursday? Well, certainly what you're going to see, and you can see it right now. If people go on the web and look at the uh, step-by-step plan, they'll see it's step three. There's significant changes with respect to the capacity in, uh, for indoor and outdoor gatherings. A lot of work, for example, has been done with faith communities about uh, the ongoing safety that will be required, while at the same time allowing significantly more people in faith gatherings. More, more of the things that have not been allowed will be permitted, and you see that, and people can see that in detail in our, uh, in our plan, our step-by-step plan that's available uh, at the uh, government website. How about live music and dancing in nightclubs? Will that be allowed to start this Thursday? We have a representative of the nightclub sector on the show later today. Well, we've been working with that. There's two uh, groups of, uh, uh, of businesses, nightclubs and casinos, that have essentially been closed for some time. You know, some nightclubs operated as other things. So like everything else, there will be an ongoing need in some sectors for COVID safety plans. And so yeah. it's my expectation that with COVID safety plans, such operations can, can go ahead. And some of those restraints are still uh, moving, moving around in, um, in the venue when those events are taking place. So we've worked through, there's been a lot of consultation with business about that, but this is a step-by-step process and we are not going to go uh, more quickly than the evidence justifies. So there's going to be a rel- an easing of restrictions in all sectors, but there's still going to be some restrictions in place for some, as I think most people would support. Okay, speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, let's talk about that heat wave you mentioned. Now, what can you say about the BC Ambulance Service right now and some of the huge challenges we're seeing? I had the president of the paramedics union on the show yesterday, Troy Clifford. I know you you know him well. And he told me yesterday people are waiting up to two hours for an ambulance. Two hours. Is that acceptable to you as the health minister? Well, we actually get detailed analysis 
of the response. And with respect to purple and red calls, which are the most ser serious calls, the response continues to be very good. And in fact, over the last number of years has, has improved. And that's thanks to the work of ambulance paramedics that are represented uh, by Mr. Clifford. So that work is going on. We've seen the largest investment since I became Minister of Health in the ambulance service. We've hired hundreds of paramedics. We're going to be hiring hundreds more to address that. What we're seeing and what we've seen in the last month is some of the largest numbers of ambulance calls we've ever seen and dispatches right. such that yesterday, last week on Friday and on Saturday, two record days, even more than the previous records, which were New Year's Eve, New Year's Day scenarios. So this is a remarkably busy time for ambulance paramedics. I think they're doing an excellent job. But I also think uh, this is why um, we started this massive investment in the ambulance service three years ago to prepare for this, and we're continuing to do it. We uh, are going to hire more ambulance paramedics, and we have. And we've done that in, in cooperation with uh, the union as well. Well, surely this can't be acceptable to you right now, though, the situation as we see it, because the paramedics union is reporting just this morning that there was another new record set just last night for calls holding uh, with t over 200 calls for ambulance service with no ambulance available and they say that is an all-time record. That can't be acceptable to you right now, could it? No, and that's precisely why, uh, Mike, we've massively invested. Like, in terms of the rate of increase in spending on the ambulance service, the hundreds hired, particularly in rural and remote communities, but also in urban areas such as Vancouver and uh, Victoria and Kelowna. So uh, we've got to continue to do that work. There is absolutely no question right now that there is very significant demand for our ambulance service, that, uh, that uh, some of that, I think, is due to people taking part in activities that they haven't been able to do for a year or so, and so yeah. some of it's that. But we're, and some of it, of course, over this past weekend is related to this very serious heat wave that we're seeing in our province. So uh, we're going to continue to support the ambulance service and invest in it and uh, right. add full-time paramedics, which is what I think everybody wants and what the ambulance uh, paramedics uh, union, for example, QP Locals 873 has agreed to. So uh, what can we do? We can massively increase resources for the ambulance service. What are we doing? Exactly that. Okay, but are you taking any urgent action like right now to put extra resources into the system right now? Because the union president told me here on the show yesterday that there are 25 ambulances in the lower mainland sitting parked, unstaffed, not used at a time when there's record calls and demands and people are waiting two hours. So, I mean, that can't be acceptable well, right now. So, Well, well Mike, we're posting right now hundreds of new jobs, but of course... But when you're posting jobs, as, as we have, we've hired close to 300 new full-time paramedics since last October, and that process is continuing with hundreds more now. So the action has been in place and then going on for, for a number of years, and it's accentuating now. And uh, the posting right now, this week, for hundreds of new positions indicates the determination to act and to make things better. Okay, final question for you, Minister. I got your opposite number on the on the liberal side of the house coming on later on the show, uh, the liberal health critic, and they've been calling on you to put more resources into the paramedic system, the ambulance system, like immediately to address that this this current need. What what do you say to the liberals and and the criticism that you're receiving from them right now? Well, the opposition's job is to uh, is to criticize, but but we have to put it in context. Uh, Mike, uh, we've, uh, we're almost tripling the rate of increase that the Liberals did up to 2017 and the five previous years. So, you know, we have to put it in context. We've hired hundreds of people. The plan has been significant. It's particularly uh, designed to stabilize uh, paramedic services in, uh, in rural BC. We've worked more closely than with the Ambulance Paramedics Union than ever before. And we have to build an ambulance service that meets the meets the, the needs of right now and the system that I had inherited. Well, some good things had happened under previous governments, including uh, George Abbott, who I think had been an ambulance paramedic, had made some good changes. In general, there had been underinvestment for some time, and that's why we've uh, substantially increased the rate of investment and hired hundreds of people, and we're going to hire hundreds more, and that's what you do when you want to improve service. The criticizing is fine, and it's the job of the opposition, but this is action. 
Minister, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today, and I, I know it's a busy day for you. I appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. You heard my interview there with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, and we talked about the record demands on the BC Ambulance Service here uh, during this record heat wave. Let's check in with the opposition now. Renee Merrifield, BC Liberal MLA. She's the Liberal Health Critic in the legislature. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here again. Let me. Uh, I know you heard part of that interview there with the minister pushing back on some of the the criticism he's received because of the the wait times for ambulance service. What do you say to him? Well, we've been sounding the alarm bell for the last month um, because we could see it coming. It was like the freight train. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got an opioid crisis that is unprecedented and the highest on record. And we knew there's going to be something else that's going to occur. And what we've seen is this downloading of these health crises uh, to the, the front line and, and the further front line and the, pen, uh, the paramedics. You can't get more front line than that. Okay, I had the president of the paramedics union on the show yesterday, Troy Clifford. Let me play a, a short clip here from him. Uh, Renee, get your thoughts. Here he is talking about the call volume and the wait times that we saw on the weekend with the, with the record heat wave. Let's have a listen. Particularly yesterday, I think, where things went out, uh, we had at points where I'm advised we, uh, we had over 100 calls waiting at one time. That's emergency and non-emergency. At times yesterday, there was over two hours to wait for emergency calls, which is absolutely unacceptable. Wow. And that's affecting patient outcomes. And, you know, uh, you know, I reached out to BCHS and said, what can we do to help? Where, you know, paramedics are fatigued. It's affecting patient care. And, you know, their, their answer is, well, it's a busy day type of stuff. And that's not acceptable. Okay, that's the president of the paramedics union on yesterday's show. Renee Merrifield, I know you're hearing similar. Like, what are you hearing from people about ambulance wait times? Oh, that they're astronomical. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand that the minister's got some statistics on, on averages, perhaps, but what we're hearing is exactly the opposite. We're hearing that, that individuals are waiting one hour, two hours, three hours. We've seen some of the paramedics going on record and saying, you know, our wait times are unacceptable. Here's what a purple wait time is right now. Here's what a red uh, wait time is right now. And that is, is, Absolutely unacceptable. The one thing I will draw attention to and what uh, Mr. Clifford said there is just talking about patient rights. And that's one thing that you won't hear a lot of right now and that I am sounding the alarm bell on. And that is that people well, are being injured. People are being harmed by these wait times. And where are the rights of the patient? Well, purple and red calls, as you describe them, that is the, the lingo for the paramedics of the most serious and urgent calls to the ambulance service. And the minister just a few minutes ago said that the the response times for purple and red calls, ambulance calls, are actually improving. You're not buying I that? No, I don't know where he's uh, where he's linking that to, or what what type of improvement. If you're doing, you know, from the greatest call days to the greatest call days, what I what I would say is that we've seen almost, and this statistic was uh, was uh, bantered back and forth between me and the and the minister during estimates, is that we've got 25 percent of our paramedics off on some form of mental health leave. That is astronomical. So I don't know how many hundreds you can hire, but when you've got a workforce of 4,000, 5,000, and 25% of them on some form of, of mental health leave, we've yeah. got a serious issue. And we need, we need thousands, not hundreds, hired in order to deal with this downloading of our health crises. Okay, well, he says that the government has hired 300 paramedics since last October. There are hundreds more job postings listed. They're hiring right now. If people, someone wants, if people want to be a paramedic, they're hiring. Uh, right now. Um, and he says they tripled. He took a crack back at the liberals there. He said when since the NDP took power, they tripled the rate of spending on the paramedic service. Your thoughts? Again, I don't know what statistics he's looking at because, you know, on average, the B.C. Liberals in 16 years of leadership actually spent on average 10 percent. In fact, we raised what we spent from 148 million to 401 million. So that's that's statistics, 170 percent increase on uh, on what we spent. Right. So we definitely saw the need as well. And you you heard that acknowledgement from uh, MLA Abbott at the time, uh, who did increase because he was a paramedic. We 
actually have yeah. some of our MLAs who are paramedics now. So, um, but what I would say is it's not just about spending. This is a mismanagement issue and you can't outspend a mismanagement issue. And we've got, yes, you can hire a paramedic, but if they're getting paid $2 an hour to be on call, no one can live on that. So you're not going to see those shifts. Pick so up, you're calling, pick okay, this is an issue. We've just got a minute left, but this is an issue that the paramedics union has frequently cited that for paramedics who are on call, uh, waiting for a call to come in largely in the in the rural parts of the province they're only getting two bucks an hour while they wait you're saying that should be increased that rate absolutely how much how much should it be fully staff them we should not have ambulances waiting right now we should not have ambulances unoccupied right now we should not have uh you know two full-time staff and everyone else on call it's not working and if it was working we would not see the wait times that we're seeing today Okay, we continue to follow this issue closely. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. That is Renee Merrifield there, BC Liberal MLA. She is the official opposition health critic in the BC legislature. What do you think about this issue? Have you called an ambulance lately and and had a long wait? Call me and tell me on the buzz line. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. All right, welcome back to the show. We've got sky-high temperatures outside. Let's talk about the sky-high prices at the gas pump right now. And taking a look at gasbuddy.com right now, almost a buck seventy a liter in a lot of places. I filled up the family minivan on Sunday, almost a hundred and ten bucks, pretty close to fill up the van. I think it was one of the highest I've ever paid. Uh, for a fill-up. Remember when Premier John Horgan was mad as hell over these gas prices. I mean, we're going back years here now, going back three years when John Horgan was furious about the pain at the pumps that people were feeling, the high gas prices. Now, never mind, he continues to increase the carbon tax every year in order to deliberately inflate the price of gas to get you to stop driving. Forget about that part of it. He's mad because he thinks the prices are, are too high. And he believes it's because those big, greedy oil companies are just gouging you. Have a listen to this now. We're going back three years here. Here's Premier John Horgan talking about gas prices. Gas prices went up nine cents overnight. That's not a tax question. That's a gouging question. And uh, I've raised this uh, with the federal government. We've certainly talked about it inside government here. Uh, When you see that type of an increase in the price of a liter of gasoline, it's not about taxation. I know that there are those that would like to make that the argument. But clearly, there's, there's not a connection between the commodity price of a barrel of oil and the price at the pumps. Okay, well, we still have the highest gas taxes in North America. The carbon tax went up again on April 1st. We've got a clean fuel mandate in the province, too, which some people believe also inflates the price of gas. We're paying some of the highest gas prices on the continent right now. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Liberal MLA Trevor Halford, represents Surrey White Rock in the legislature. I'm pleased to welcome him. Trevor, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. What do you think of these uh, high gas prices? <laughs> well, you, you talked. I've, I've filled up my fair share of minivans in the day, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, right now it is... Uh, it is very painful to go to the pump, and uh, it's been painful for a number of years. But we're we're seeing records not only in temperature, but we're seeing records in uh, in gas prices. And you know, I I understand the premier has uh, has spoken very angrily about this issue over the last few years. He spoke about it angrily when he was in opposition too. But at the end of the day, um, this is a premier that's that's overpromised on this issue and completely underdelivered. And we've got to hold yeah. him to account on that. Okay, when you hear him say that this is not a gas tax issue, mm-hmm. as he said in that clip there, this is a gouging issue. These are these big, greedy oil companies that are gouging you at the gas pump. How do you respond to that? Are you buying that argument? Well, I think with that, listen, the province is right now, as we speak, I think it's about 37 cents uh, a litre that the province is responsible for for tax, uh, for, for gas. So there's that element, and then I, I you know, I did the premier's referencing the uh, the report from BCUC, and I'll say this, um, you know, if that's the premier's belief, and they there may have some uh, validity to it, then what's your plan? And this has been right. something that this is not new. Uh, we're not just finding out this report yesterday or a month ago. This report has been out for a while. So 
what is your plan? It is, it is one thing to, to be outraged by it, um, and that's fine. Appreciate that. Um, that's our job. Uh, your job is to go in and fix it and find a way to get a solution for BC, uh, BC consumers at the pump. And right now, he has completely failed on that to do that. So, um, you know, you can be outraged all you want, but at the end of the day, consumers need a plan, and this premier has failed to deliver on that. Okay, how would you fix it? Like, if the Liberals were in power right now, what would you guys be doing? What, cutting gas taxes? Well, I, I think you, that's one of the options you got to look at. And, you know, when you say that you've got, you know, the carbon tax has gone up, the provincial motor fuel tax has gone up, the dedicated motor fuel tax has gone up, um, you know, you've got to look at, at ways that you've you got to look at all the tools in the toolbox to, to, to fix this issue. Um, now, if it's, a, if it's also an issue of price gouging, um, and that some of that was referenced in the report, then you got to figure out a way to keep hold these companies accountable. And and it's one thing to say, and I know that Mr. Ralston's talked about in the past in terms of, you know, uh, putting more transparency and, 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 you know, pulling back the curtains to get answers for British Columbians on how the price of gasoline is set. Um, right. We haven't seen any of that. Like that, and those comments were made over a year ago. So, you know, it would be good to have those conversations and be transparent about it. But if gouging is an issue, then let's have that conversation. But let's get the data out there to do that. And we haven't seen that. This is one of the things that I highlighted at the time when the the government went through this, uh, what I thought was kind of a sham exercise in going through an inquiry or review into gas prices in B.C. I mean, Horgan loves to get out there, kind of beat his chest, point his finger at these gas companies and these oil companies, saying they're the ones you should be blaming. Don't blame me for cranking Mm -hmm. up gas taxes. It's not my fault. It's these greedy greedy oil companies. Well, that sort of sets up... um, expectations for the public that you're actually going to do something about it now when you talk about doing something to these companies we're talking about regulating gas prices so you're saying what the bc utilities commission should come in and set the gas prices in british columbia regulate gas prices is that what you're suggesting well no what i'm suggesting is we got to look at all the options like the first thing we need to know is what we're dealing with and what the data is and i think that you know, even the energy minister said is that, you know, he wants a requirement to publish the wholesale prices and, and see kind of, you know, what, what steps are able to take. We, that was a year ago. And as of right now, when you look on the commission website, nothing's changed. So it's really hard to see how, you know, what we can do if we don't have the proper data. And I'm all for one for transparency and holding people accountable. But the number one person that needs to be held accountable right now is the premier of this province, because this is an issue that he has felt very passionate about, spoke out very, you know, aggressive on, and I applaud that. But I'll right. applaud it even more if he does something about it. Okay, speaking to Trevor Halford, Liberal MLA, Surrey White Rock, it was uh, the previous Liberal government that actually brought in the carbon tax. It's interesting how the tables have been turned here because the NDP opposed it at the time when they were in opposition, and now now they're the ones r- raising the carbon tax. The Liberals at one point had promised froze that carbon tax in place. Do you think that's something that should be considered again? Freeze the carbon tax. Do not rise it any, raise it any higher. What, what's the Liberal policy on that? Well, I think we need to look at that, and I think that we need to when gas prices are the way they are. And I always equate it to, you know, the fact is, is it, uh, somebody told me the other day, and they said, "Oh, well, you know, I was having this conversation. You don't need to go out and buy a buy a buy a hybrid." Or go and buy a Tesla. Like, you got to catch up. Like, go buy a Tesla. Uh, okay. Um, I can't, you know, for the single mom out there that's gassing up uh, an older model car, um, oh. that's, that's not going to work right now. And, you know, she's trying to get her kids to school. She's trying to get to work. She's trying to get to different things. Um, consumers right now in British Columbia are being absolutely gouged. And, you know, I, like, when you talk about the carbon tax, it's something that we campaigned on in 2009. Um, revenue neutral. And that is one of the yeah. biggest changes that this government's made. And so I think we've got to be really, really honest about that conversation. Is, is this the right time, though, to be talking about reducing or freezing a carbon tax or taking taxes off of gasoline when we've got a climate change crisis and right now the province is in the grips of an historic and unprecedented yeah. heat wave? that a lot of experts will say that this is climate change in action, what we're experiencing right now with this brutal heat wave that's hovering over the province. We're seeing heat records fall every single day. It, you know, a lot of people would say, 
you should go the other direction and raise the carbon tax, not reduce it. Your thoughts? Yeah, and you know what? Climate change is real. And I think that we all we all understand that. And but I'll go back to the example I just gave. And the fact is, is that, you know, we're seeing historic, you know, heat levels right now. But we're also seeing, as you referenced before, Mike, we're seeing historic, you know, prices at the pump. And again, um, some people don't have that luxury, right, in terms of when they fill up their vehicle and what they need to do and how they get to work and, you know, where they need to get their kids and things like that. And um you know those that that is one of my primary concerns for the families right now that are trying to fill up their their minivans and uh, i i too had a minivan and you know when you go to the pump it surprises you how much that thing you know how much those take and it's you know i can tell you it's a struggle for a lot of parents right now i'm seeing that firsthand and uh you know, it's something I think we got to be very very aware of affordability is is something that this government continues to fail on Okay, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, you bet. That is Trevor Halford there, Liberal MLA, Surrey White Rock, putting uh, the B.C. government, the John Horgan government, on notice to do something about rising gas prices. Now, you heard him talk there about possibly cutting gas taxes. Is that the answer? When you take a look at how much uh, the government takes from you every time you fill up your vehicle, and it's every level of government in on this. You got the federal sales tax, you got the BC carbon tax, provincial excise tax, federal excise tax. Of course, you got the TransLink tax, which uh, in, in Metro Vancouver, all of it adding up. You add it up in Metro, you're looking at what's like 61.2 cents of total tax on a liter of gas in Metro Vancouver. Highest in North America is now the time to cut gas taxes. What about the heat wave? What about climate change? You're going to get an argument on the other side of it from environmentalists who say crazy to cut gas taxes right now. You should be doing the opposite and raising it. Phone me right now on the open. Let's open the open line in this one now. And you phone me and tell me, what is it like out there with these gas prices right now? Is this impacting your bottom line as a family, as a business, the high gas prices we're seeing? Phone me right now and tell me, do you think the government should step in, do something about it, cut taxes, regulate gas prices, bring the hammer down in these oil companies? Phone me and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. A lot of people switching to an electric vehicle. Have you done that? Has it made a difference? Call me on that too. And what about the cheaper gas south of the border? Did you save a lot of money when the border was open going down and buying gas down there in Blaine? You want to see that border reopen so you get cheap gas again? 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. This is Mike Smith. Back with your calls. All right, welcome back to the show. Premier John Horgan expected to make it official this afternoon. The B.C. will move to step three of its reopening plan. That would take effect this Thursday, July 1st, Canada Day. Step three of the reopening plan. You'll see a lot of the COVID rules change there as the government uh, looks at the effectiveness of the vaccine and the dropping case count. Nightclubs could be allowed to reopen here starting on a Thursday. How are they preparing for that? And how will going to a nightclub be any different? Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now, executive director of Able BC, represents the bars, pubs, and nightclubs in British Columbia, and we just lost him, so we're going to get him back on the line. But in the meantime, I, I talked about this with Adrian Dix, the health minister today, earlier on the show, and we talked about moving to stage three, step three, in the reopening plan. And I asked him about the nightclub scene in Metro Vancouver and British Columbia, and will they be allowed to reopen? And how is that going to work? Are you going to be allowed to have live music and you go out and see a band at a, at, a, at a club now? What about dancing in nightclubs? Will that be allowed? Here's what he told me. Have a listen here. Here's the health minister. Nightclubs and casinos that have essentially been closed for some time. You know, some nightclubs operated as other things. So like everything else, there will be an ongoing need in some sectors for COVID safety plans. And so yeah. it's my expectation that with COVID safety plans, such operations can, can go ahead. And some of those restraints are still 
moving uh, moving around in um, in the venue when those events are taking place. So we've worked through. There's been a lot of consultation with business about that. But this is a step-by-step process, and we are not going to go uh, more quickly than the evidence justifies. Okay, Jeff, that's uh, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix on the show earlier today. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now, Executive Director, Able BC. Jeff, thanks for coming on once again. No problem, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. So you heard the comments from Adrian Dix. We expect nightclubs to be allowed to reopen Thursday. Is that what you expect? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been in pretty regular contact with um, the provincial health officers team over the last few weeks to figure out how we can open nightclubs again safely. And we're uh, a number of places can be set to go on Thursday, Friday, Saturday this weekend and happy to welcome customers back. We'll say it's not going to be quite like it was in the four times, right? We're still really invested in a staggered, safe reopening. So we're not going to have dance floors for a little bit. We've we recommended to government we keep those closed for another uh, few weeks or month, as well as we're still going to have some restrictions on group sizes. Probably we recommend that people sit down at their table. And so maybe more of like a lounge uh, a feeling than a, than a, you know, a traditional nightclub for the next little while. Okay, so nightclubs will be allowed to reopen, but you're saying that, like, the dance floor will still be closed, and that's, volu- that's, that's voluntary? Yeah, well, I, th- I think they're going to include it into an order. I mean, we've worked with them, and the provincial health officer's perspective on this has been that like, certain kinds of establishments are based on higher risk than others, right? I mean, a dance floor, if one person out there who's not vaccinated and they're carrying the virus, they can infect the entire club very quickly. So we just want to do it slowly in steps to make sure that we can do it safely, um, and we know that customers are eager to come back where people are already trying to book reservations <laughs> for us. Um, but we, we're just telling folks it's going to be a few weeks yet before it's back to full operation. So just bear with us. Come out and have a good time. And you can sit at your table and have um, you know hang out with a group of 10 with your friends. And then um, and we'll get back to dancing in short order. Okay, what about live music? A lot of people love going out to a bar, nightclub to watch a band perform at night. Like, is that, that's currently, is that currently not allowed? Uh, yeah, it's, it's allowed again. So allowed. one of the restrictions we've had is you can have a band, but they had to be you know three meters away from everybody with lots of glass, and you couldn't turn the, the volume up very loud. But that, that restriction is removed. So we'll be booking uh, live music again. Uh, we'll wow. have DJs, and you can play you know even something as simple as you know a sports game. Once you're in here for a while, we can have music that I cut. Because the real story is this. we have to be careful. We have to be cautious and to do this safely. But ultimately, we are emerging from the pandemic from a public health perspective. Okay, you're, you're, break, you're, you're breaking up real bad there, Jeff, on your, on your cell phone connection. I don't know if you can step a little closer to a window or something. Maybe that'll, maybe that'll help improve it. But let oh, me ask you. I, what I it, apologize. Yeah, what's, what's it been like? I, I know it's been brutal, the, this phase of the pandemic, and I, I'm, I'm sure there is great relief on the reopening and the restart plan that, as it's rolling out. Can you comment generally on, on how bars, pubs, uh, nightclubs, and how they've weathered this storm? What's that been like? Well, folks are extremely excited to get back to business. Uh, and I'll say this feels like you know coming out of a, a long, dark tunnel because the past 18 months have been devastating financially for our sector. Uh, about 80% of the industry has been losing money uh, or barely breaking even for the past year. And 16% of businesses have already closed, right? And some folks still don't know if they're going to make it through the summer as things like the, the federal wage subsidy um, diminishes. So what this feels like, though, is an opportunity to, to stand on our own two feet again, right? Nobody wants to take the federal government supports. They, they want to have enough customers coming in. But we know that folks are not necessarily going to be confident dining out again. I mean, you, you, you can imagine, are you comfortable sitting two feet from someone when you're used to sitting two meters from them? Are you comfortable not wearing masks? Uh, so we're going to figure all that out over the next couple of months. But I know our operators are really excited to get back to business uh, and try and get something like normal again. Are you comfortable with the rules as they've been laid out, and do you have a clear understanding of how this reopening, this re- step three restart, will will happen on Thursday? Because when I was speaking to the minister, he was talking about, well, yeah, nightclubs will be allowed to reopen, but they'll still have to have some safety protocols in place. How is that going yep. to work? Yeah, so we got a briefing this morning on some some issues, which we we can't talk about until the release today at one forty five. But ultimately, yeah, they're they're trying to be quite permissive and just focusing on uh, a series of guidance. Right. So, for example, we all know that we're moving away from masks being required to masks being recommended. And they'll have guidance for how you can handle that in, in the workplace and uh, in specific sectors like ours. So, no, we're, we're feeling like they've been consulting with us quite regularly for the last while. And uh, it's going to look and feel a lot more like a normal experience. I mean, if you think of the restrictions that have been on restaurants and pubs, I mean, we've, we're currently not allowed to sell alcohol past midnight. Right. And they've been clear that that restriction is going to be removed. So you're going to be able to go out and have a drink at one o'clock in the morning if you want or if you're still out. 
um, we know that the group sizes are, are going away, right? So instead of being restricted to having your group of six, you can go out with, you know, your full family and all sit at one table of eight or something instead. Uh, so a lot of those changes are going to make it look and feel like normal again. And the only reason we're able to get there is our industry has been very diligent about following those health, health protocols uh, and got into a space where we're no longer seeing transmission in our sectors. Enough people are vaccinated and uh, it's time to get back to work. Okay, speaking to Jeff Gleenard, he represents the bars and pubs in British Columbia. So the, the alcohol serving last call, that uh, currently midnight, you're, that will go to 1 a.m. effective Thursday. Is that correct? Now, just go back to whatever your liquor license is. So for some folks, okay. that's 1. Some folks, that's 2 o'clock. Nightclubs, it's probably 3 o'clock in a lot of cases, right? So wow. it'll, be, it'll be back to what it was beforehand. Yeah, which feels like that's been a long time yeah. <laughs> that you've been able to do that. Um, and there's some other venues like, um, you know, casinos that are going to have particular rules around that. I mean, you can imagine anywhere where large groups of people are gathering and events. I mean, Dr. Henry will be releasing some, some different protocols for those. But for the majority of businesses out there, um, it's going to be a bit of a period to figure out what customers are comfortable with. Right. But we're moving away from orders to just guidance, right? And some of the restrictions we've had about maintaining social distance are going to be gone, uh, as well as group sizes and liquor serving hours. So it's, it's, it's quite exciting for our industry. This is the day we've been working towards for the last 18 months. Right. Now, I'm sure it is quite exciting, and I know you've been working a long time. It just seems weird, though, isn't it? I mean, we've just been living with this thing for so long, and now to suddenly go into okay, we're going to sort of go back to normal now. Do you anticipate that? Yeah, it is very strange uh, days for sure. Like, do you anticipate that there would be any kind of customer hesitancy or, or fear about going back into like a large indoor crowd? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, throughout this pandemic, we've seen some folks have just been comfortable coming out and others have been come out or not, depending on the protocols. And some people have not come out to a restaurant or bar in the last 18 months. Uh, we're really excited to welcome them back in a safe way, and uh, we, we're happy to earn their trust again because we, we know the big factor in working in our favor now is that uh, over 75% of the population is vaccinated. About a third of them have got their second dose as well. Uh, we're in a spot that it is safe to drink out and dine out in BC. Uh, we're still going to be following a series of stringent sanitization protocols, and you're still going to see some masks out there. And over the next few weeks, we'll be talking with our staff and customers about what they're comfortable with and uh, you're still going to see some plexiglass out for the next little while. And I mean, places have spent thousands of dollars on it. And they don't think they want to take it down too quickly. <laughs> they want to get their money's worth out of it. Um, but there, there is no reason to be nervous about going back out again, right? And I would just say talk to the establishment. You're going out, find out what their protocols are, and go where you're comfortable. Right. Jeff, what's the situation for staff uh, coming back to some of these facilities? I know it is a very, very difficult labor market out there. A lot of people lost yeah. their jobs in the bars, pubs, restaurants, nightclubs. And a lot of them, I guess some of them will come back to work, but a lot of them maybe have moved on. I was talking to a guy I know who owns a bar, and I, I asked him, well, you must be happy to be serving to midnight again. And he said, well, I would love it if I could get the staff. He just doesn't have the wait staff anymore, and he's just dying. Yeah. He's struggling trying to hire people. But what's the status yeah. of that? Well, if you're looking for a job right now, just uh, don't overthink it. Walk into a bar or restaurant, pub or hotel or tourism operation, and they're, they're looking for staff. Um, during the pandemic, we had to lay people off two or three times, right? And then even when you went to work, uh, some British Columbians were not on their best behavior, right? They were not being their best selves. They were blaming our serving staff for public health protocols, right? So the you know, you get laid off a lot. You weren't making a lot of tips. And, and normally, these hospitality jobs are, are, are good. The average liquor server makes about $35 an hour in BC. But you weren't making that during the pandemic. And then customers are being rude. So, yeah, we, we've lost tens of thousands of workers from our industry. And it's hindering reopening. Uh, and even though you're right, even though we're allowed to stay open until our normal hours, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, right. not everyone's going to do it. Or some places are closed for lunch. And it's entirely because of the difficulty getting labor. It's a, it's a serious hindrance to restarting our economy. Uh, so if you're looking for a job, um, you know, come out and walk into a bar or restaurant right now. We're hiring. Jeff, thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Mike. Have yourself a great day. Stay okay, safe. thank you. Same to you. Jeff Guinard there, Executive Director, Able BC. They represent the bars, pubs in, in British Columbia, also the nightclubs. Step three of the reopening plan coming this Thursday, July 1st. Nightclubs allowed to reopen. As you heard Jeff Guinard say there, uh, most clubs voluntarily will keep the dance floor closed for a little while longer. Uh, liquor service hours going later, effective Thursday to 1 a.m. in a lot of places. Depends on your liquor license, though, as you heard him ex explain there. Some nightclubs will be allowed to stay open 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Imagine that, going out party to 3 a.m. 
I remember those days a long time ago, though. Not me. But maybe there's a lot of young people out there ready to party again. Here's what I want to do right now. Phone me on the open line on this. Are you ready to go back to the bar, the pub, the nightclub, the restaurant? Are you ready to get back to normal? How would you feel about going into uh, a nightclub, the crowded nightclub, not wearing a mask, see a, see a band, go out and have a good time with your friends again? Are you ready to do that now? I wonder if there's a lot of hesitancy or fear out there that might prevent some people from heading back. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. You heard Jeff Guinard uh, describe there the labor shortage for bars, pubs, restaurants. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the great fur debate in Canada and right here in British Columbia, too. Seems kind of weird to talk about wearing fur during the middle of a heat wave. Used to be the height of fashion, but uh, lots of uh, big, big blows happening to this industry in Canada late last week. Luxury department store chain Holt Renfrew announced they will go officially fur-free by the end of 2021, the store says this is part of their sustainability mandate. They will no longer sell fur coats and fur products. Canada Goose, maker of the luxury winter coats, the iconic Canada Goose jacket, famous for the fur-lined hood, they will go fur-free as well according in 2022, according to Canada Goose. Meanwhile, right here at home, the fight against fur farms in British Columbia heating up. A new ad campaign and a petition drive aimed to ban fur farms in British Columbia. There are several farms in B.C. raising minks for the fur industry. A couple of them had a COVID outbreak recently. Let's discuss now with my guests. We have both sides of it. First, I'm going to speak to Alan Herskovici. Alan is a researcher with truthaboutfur.com. He's the former executive vice president, Fur Council of Canada. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thanks for coming on. Hi there, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, Alan, you must be disappointed. Must be a, This is a big blow to your industry, I imagine, when you've got big retailers like Holt Renfrew saying they're going fur-free, Canada Goose going fur-free. What do you think? Well, I, th- I think it's sad, but it, it's also a matter of concern, and not just for the fur industry. I think that all Canadians should really be concerned because the reason why Canada Goose has backed away from fur, it's pretty clear, is they were subjected to years and years and years of really aggressive protesting at, uh, on their stores in different countries, huge campaigns by major groups like PETA, $100 million groups, um, and, and they basically at the cost of security costs and, and PR costs, were obviously finally too much for the bean counters. And uh, remember, the Canada Goose got uh, sold majority interest to American Venture Capital some years ago uh, and on the stock exchange. So, you know, it, it, it clearly goes against all the values Canada Goose has talked about all along. Canada Goose has always said, and it's still on their website, they understand that fur is responsibly and sustainably produced. They've understood yeah. and they've been proud that they're supporting northern communities and First Nations communities. Um, so that they make this change. We've seen them since a year ago. They said they had only used recycled fur, and now they go to this, and what happens right away, PETA says, oh, well, we're going to stop our campaigns and do a moratorium now, leave them in peace because they've done what we told them to. And, and you know, this, it's, it's, this, this is just the latest example of the sort of bullying campaigns we're seeing from certain extreme activist groups and, I mean, the question is, is this really the way we want companies or governments or whatever to make decisions? Especially okay. in this case, where, where obviously, you know, fur is sustainably and responsibly produced in this country. We know that well. So, you know, moving away from fur is certainly not for sustainability. Okay, Canada Goose, big worldwide brand and a very iconic company. Um, what kind of fur do they typically use in their, in their jackets, do you know? Well, they've been using for the trim, for the, for the rough around the hood, which is, provides protection for the face in extreme cold. They've been using coyote. And, and, yeah, and coyote. coyote is like highly abundant in this country, across North America. Coyote populations have expanded over the last decades across all of North America. We even have coyotes now in our cities. We have coyotes that are eating people's puppies. Uh, in Montreal, where I live sometimes, you know, there's coyotes in the city and biting people. We never used to see that. 
there's a popular so coyotes have to be managed and the point is whether or not we use fur and apparel uh coyotes will be managed um but if it's mm. not being done with an incentive from the market then the government will have to to do it like they used to before and people will be paid to do it and the taxpayers will flip the bill okay and they'll be thrown in the trash they won't be used which is oh. not an ethical solution Okay, when you said that Canada Goose had been using recycled fur in their coats, like what, what is recycled fur? Well, they hadn't done it yet, but what they announced a year ago was that as of next year, they were planning to try to, to use fur, recuperate fur that was already in another garment. When people sometimes stop wearing a garment, this is done a lot. There's a number of people that will take old fur coats and, and take them apart, and the fur can still be used and turned into something oh. else. And they had said they would try to do that. By the way, that's just another example of why fur really is sustainable. And at a time we're trying to, you know, deal with the waste that happens in a lot of the fast fashion that we have now, and over right. 60% of what we wear is synthetics made from petrochemicals that do not biodegrade, you know, the fact that fur lasts so long and then can be reused in other products, you know, that's another aspect of, of its sustainability. Okay. So, uh, you know, it, it's, but the point is coyotes are highly abundant in Canada and they do have to be managed and they will be whether we use it or not. So, okay. uh, you know, that, it's, it's, it's too bad that Canada Goose has been pushed in this way. Speaking to Alan Herskovici, truthaboutfur.com, uh, you mentioned that, you know, this is sustainability argument, which is, um, you know, a very common kind of phrase we hear a lot that industries and companies want to have a sustainability uh, mandate, and this is what Holt Renfrew has been saying that they've decided to stop selling fur because it's part of their sustainability goals as a luxury retailer. But you're saying that the fur industry is sustainable, right? Like it's not like these animals are going to oh, go yeah. extinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, No, no. I mean, no. And this is the terrible irony, and this is why I said I'm concerned how off track some of these discussions are going from reality and from science. And biology and wildlife biology. You know, the, the World Conservation Union, the, the IUCN, as part of the sustainability, you know, the word sustainability comes from the World Conservation Strategy, which was the, the idea that we should be making sustainable use of the surpluses that nature produces. Part of what right. the, nature makes more animals, more plants, more everything every year. And part of that, you know, we can use without harming ecosystems. The fur trade in Canada actually happens to be an excellent example of responsible and sustainable use. You know, we don't use any endangered species. They're not used for fur. We're only, fur in Canada is only being used part of the abundant, you know, of abundant populations without diminishing right. the populations. This is actually the goal of sustainable use. And so it's, so it's sort of funny, if it wasn't so sad, that companies are saying these things uh, you know, which are totally opposite. And then okay. sometimes they're using fake fur, which is actually made from petrochemicals, and makes uh, no sense. Just to be clear, nobody has to wear fur. People are free to choose they wear fur or not, they wear leather or not, they eat meat or not. No, these are personal choices. What's sad here is we're seeing activists pushing to impose their own particular views on everyone, and they're doing it with kind of protection racket tactics, literally like sort of mafia protection racket of, you know, I'm going to pressure you, and I'm going to attack your store, and I'm going to make your life miserable until you do what I say. Okay, well, let me... Let me it's just simpler for the companies to back off, you know, which is a sad thing. Let me ask you this, Alan, last question for you. I mean, you're saying that the, these companies are knuckling under to pressure tactics, but these companies are in the in business to make money. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Bottom line is they want to survive, they want to be profitable, uh, and continue to make a lot of money. So I would imagine if that, you know, if you're an executive in the boardroom of Holt Renfrew or Canada Goose, I mean, you're looking at this campaign, you're measuring public opinion on attitudes toward fur, and you're saying, you know what, this is doing us more harm than good as a company. Let's stop selling this so we can, we can remain in business and keep being profitable. Isn't that what it's, a, isn't this like a bottom line business decision for these companies? It, it is, but not quite the way you're saying it. In the case of Canada Goose, again, uh, I'm convinced because of all the statements they've always made and right up till, you know, recently, you know, and, and the president, and Danny Reese, the family have always strongly supported and understood the value of furs, a practical, sustainably produced, responsibly produced, supporting northern communities. This has been really central to what they talk about in the home, the legend of Canada Goose, so that they turn around like this, you know, is clearly as a result of pressure. Uh, Hold Renfrew is a bit different, ironic, too, because eh? Hold Renfrew actually began as a furrier 100 years ago. 
But, uh, you know, what happened, it belongs to the Weston family. And a couple of years ago, it's the daughter took over the company. She lives and has always lived in England. And she's very much part of a whole anti-first sort of mood in England, that whole mood. And that's where mm. that's coming from. It's somewhat different. Okay. Uh, but in the, in the case of Canada Goose, I think it's uh, it's clearly pressured. But look, the, the good news is there are other Canadian brands, great companies like Rudsack, like Moose Knuckles, like Novis, that are producing beautiful fur trim. And, and of course, all this claim that people don't want to wear it is, of course, nonsense. If you almost anywhere except Vancouver, if you go to any major city <laughs> uh, in Canada through the winter and you see all the young people wearing, you know, fur trim parkas, Clearly, it's not true that people don't want to wear it. Okay. But I, I, I'm mostly concerned that we're getting really misleading messages. Wear fur, don't wear fur. But let's not pretend that it's, uh, it improves sustainability to stop using fur. That's simply Thank not you. true. Thank you, Alan, for being a guest on the show once again today. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Okay, appreciate it. Alan Hersko, VC, their truth about fur. Doc. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Zoe Pallad. Zoe is the co-founder of the Ban Fur Farms BC campaign. Zoe, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you so much for having us on and being open to further dialogue about uh, a very important and very pertinent subject right now. Yeah, sure. You're welcome. Um, I just spoke to a, a fur industry official who's uh, yeah. unhappy with these setbacks. He says fur is sustain a sustainable industry that's great for Canada. What do you say to him? I I would say, so I actually wanted to, to address something. So yeah. Alan did write a, a formal letter to the Chilliwack Progress following some information they published about our campaign. And what I would like to kick off with, specifically in regards to that letter, is within his response, he refers to us as activists who are, uh, quote, imposing our values on others. And the reason why I would like to bring attention to that line specifically is this is not uncommon. And this is not uncommon because the minute that someone or an organization is labeled as, you know, animal activism or an animal activist, yeah. it, is, it is often discredited. And the reality here is that, yes, animals are a very important part of this discussion, given that they are at the center of the industry. But this is not an animal activist issue. This is an everyone issue because when we look at the industry and we look at the problematic components of the industry, they relate to animals, they relate to the environment, and they relate to public health. So this is not, this is not an issue that can be polarized as, as yeah. many organizations may try to do. And we really need to be looking at the entire picture here. Okay, you want to, you're asking the BC government to ban fur farms in British Columbia. How many of these fur farms are operating in BC right now? Do you know? I do. Right now, there are 11 fur farms operating in BC, okay. you know, that, that we are aware of. Ten of those are mink fur farms, and thus far, all of the COVID-19 outbreaks have occurred on mink fur farms. Yeah. And then the 11th farm is a chinchilla fur farm. Right. And these fur farms say, of course, that they're heavily regulated by government. They're subject to in inspections by official <laughs> government veterinarians and the animals are, are well cared for. Like, why do you want them banned? Roger. So I'm, I'm going to just speak to the first part of your question just to clarify some points about the regulatory process. So the regulations for fur farms, and this is the case for all farms, they are put into place by the National Farm Animal Care Council. So that is also known as the NFACC. And when we look at the folks who are developing those codes of practice, we need to acknowledge that the majority of individuals in those positions are also those who are already within the industry. So these codes are being established, however, they're being established from, you know, a very biased point of view, and we're looking at a lot of vested interest. Okay. In okay, let's take, yeah, let's yeah. just squeeze a couple of calls in here, Zoe, while we can. Mike in North, Mike in North Vancouver. Go ahead, Mike. 
Hey, I, I wanted to thank Zoe for talking about the fur farm issue, but also speak to some of the things that Alan had said, uh, which were yeah. really interesting, including calling us members of the mafia for disagreeing with him. Um, <laughs> but I think one of the really great things, too, is the history of coyotes, as he spoke to that, yeah. because coyotes have been, you know, hunted to the point of governments actually trying to eradicate them for over 200 years. And now there are more coyotes. So it seems that the fur industry's concept of we need to control the population is actually going the other direction, which is also what the science says. Uh, but I would like to hear more about the regulations on the fur farms. Uh, my understanding is the NFAC codes, they actually tried to reduce the cage sizes or prevent a cage size increase recently. I'll take my call off the air. Thanks. Okay, thank you for the call. Zoe, we've got, we only got 40 seconds left here. Go ahead. Got it. So as, as mentioned, there were currently some regulations that were, that were reassessed by the NFACC. However, as mentioned, because those regulations are prioritizing industry, they don't make much impact. And okay. if we look at what's happening now, and that is the fact that we are currently under an extreme heat advisory, imagine, imagine wearing a fur coat. So animals like mink, would typically find relief in the water, but on fur farms, they can't do that. Okay, Zoe, so, thank you. I hate, I hate to cut you off, but sadly we're out of time, but I want to thank you for your time, and thank you for being on the show today. Of course. Thanks again, and if anyone would like to discuss further or get more information, they can find us on our social channels. Thank you, Zoe. Zoe Pellet there, Banned Fur Farms BC Campaign. All right, welcome back to the show. If you're going camping this weekend, you can leave the marshmallows and the s'more kits at home because there will be a new campfire ban in effect starting tomorrow. Our show contributor, John Jang, has the latest and reaction to this announcement. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Starting at 12 o'clock noon on Wednesday, campfires will be banned throughout the entire province, just one week after a ban on larger open fires was originally announced here in BC. For those keeping score at home, campfires are defined as anything smaller than 0.5 meters wide by 0.5 meters tall. At this time, the ban will be in effect until October 15th, or until an official announcement is made later in the summer announcing the end of the ban. The timing is crucial for the provincial government, with many residents hoping to get out of town for the upcoming quasi-long weekend with Canada Day on Thursday. Those interested in trying to book campsites through the Discover BC website will find most of them are already fully reserved. It should be noted that the use of fireworks, sky lanterns, burn barrels or burn cages, binary exploding targets, tiki and other similar kinds of torches are all similarly banned. And of course, we're just on the heels of a massive heat wave that scorched the province over the past several days, setting dozens and dozens of new temperature records, including the highest recorded temperature ever in Canada, an astounding 47.5 degrees Celsius in Lytton, BC. The BC Wildfire Dashboard currently shows 25 active wildfires across the province, ranging from controlled burns to out-of-control blazes. Some of them were started up by things like lightning strikes, while others, including one at Harrison Lake, are suspected to be human-caused. But the dashboard says that of the 25 current fires, 16 of them have started up in the last two days alone. Most interested campers understand the reasons behind the campfire ban, such as our very own Sarah Hyde, who is the lead producer of The Mike Smith Show. This weekend, we are going camping. We leave on Thursday, and I was really excited for campfires because I spent a lot of time in my young adulthood being a camp counselor, and one of the things I taught was fire building. So I was actually really excited to teach my son like how to use a hatchet and build a fire and have that bonding, but there's a campfire ban, so now instead um, we'll sit around a campfire pit with no fire in it, which is actually okay, because when I was originally thinking about it, I was like, oh man, what are we even going to do at night to like have fun in the dark? But then I realized it won't, even, it won't be dark. It's like bright sunshine till nine right now. He goes to bed at like seven. So it's, it's a bit of a bummer, but I'm coping. Fair enough. And so you have no plans whatsoever to cancel your camping. You're not that disgruntled. You can you can deal and roll with the punches. I'm definitely not going to cancel my camping. I don't want to cause a fire. I would never, like, if, if they're saying that it's too dry to have campfires, then we will just camp and not have a campfire. 
okay, doing it responsibly, making Smokey the Bear happy, everyone <laughs> kind of uh, dealing with the circumstances here. And it won't be forever, right? You know, maybe there's next year. Who knows? Yeah, well, we're going camping in Tofino later in the summer, and it, it does say that they can rescind it earlier. Uh, and I know that Tofino is pretty wet, even by August. So I'm cautiously optimistic there might be a chance then. However, there are those who feel that a campfire ban is punishing responsible campers for the actions of an irresponsible few. Yeah, it's actually really disappointing. Uh, like you said, I'm one of those few people uh, that do it safely when I do have a fire. I like to have all you know fire extinguishers handy, ready if I need it. So it's really disappointing that you know the government has got to put a stop to this for people that are responsible that want to do it right. Fair enough. And when you say that you've done it uh, responsibly, have you ever been in a campsite where you see others, uh, maybe not necessarily in your group, but people that are close by who are being far more irresponsible about it? Like you can at least understand why they're doing it. Or have you noticed that for the most part, on average, people are all pretty smart with how they control their fires? Actually, you know, yeah, I've seen people be irresponsible with their fires. Like, we go to campsites and they usually have a rule with no big fires and some people will just bring tons of wood pallets and just toss them onto the fire and then all of a sudden you got a big bonfire going but that's only like a small group of people it could be one or two off in the distance but usually most of the people that i'm around that are camping whether it's my group or other groups they're pretty responsible with their fires most of it's family so they know what's going on they know how to be responsible so that's that's a good thing i do get that there is irresponsible people out there that will just do whatever and break the rules but you know there's good people like us out there that like to do things the right way if you now have to deal with this campfire ban uh, are, are you going to cancel your camping plans or is it something that you're just going to deal with uh i'm not going to cancel but it will definitely be a bummer not being able to camp without without any fires i think it's a really big part of camping and the enjoyment of it so yeah it'll, uh, it'll suck, but i think we'll We'll be able to get through it. And Mike, I'll just mention that anyone found breaking a fire ban could face a range of different penalties and fines, including a $1,150 ticket, an administrative penalty up to $10,000, or a fine of up to $100,000 and up to one year in prison. And those who break a fire ban and contribute to the start of a new wildfire could also be on the hook for wildfire fighting costs. Back to you, Mike. All right, thank you for that, John, and that report by our own John Jang. And John joins me now. And, John, good report. I feel sorry for Sarah, our producer here, mm -hmm. who's looking forward to camping with her kids this weekend and teaching them a little wood lore there and how to light a campfire. And there's nothing finer than sitting around a crackling campfire. So that's, that's too bad. That, that is disappointing. I can certainly understand the ban, though, in, in these uh, tinder dry conditions and such and such uh, red-hot temperatures right now. Um, are there any campsites left? Like, if people are thinking, like, well, maybe I wouldn't mind going camping even with the campfire ban. You can always sit around a little Coleman lantern or something. You know, are there any yeah. campsites left to book this weekend? None if, you're trying to, none, none if you're trying to book it through the uh, Discover BC Camping website. All the yeah. ones that you can pre-book are all done. I mean, we're talking Vancouver Island, parts of northern BC, out into the interior. They're all fully booked. Your best bet now is to try and secure a first-come, first-served camping site, which, as we know, when it comes to weekends like this one, Mike, ultra, ultra competitive. So unless you plan on getting out there nice and early before the sun even rises, uh, chances are pretty slim. You might want to just stay at home. Yeah, I mean, to book a campsite, especially in the popular parks in our province, you got to be like an online ninja to figure this stuff out. I mean, you got to book two months in advance of your arrival date, and you've got to plan it out effectively and have an action plan sitting at your computer, credit card in your hand, like ready to go. So there are a lot of tips out there and people who can effectively use the online Dis uh, Discover Camping website. But with a two-month advance camping uh, booking site, I mean, there's probably not a lot left for the remainder of the summer, I would imagine. Yeah, no, the rest of the summer is also slim pickings right yeah. now. What you can do is you can find a specific campsite that you like, Mike, and you can set up a notification service. So in the event that 
there's an availability, maybe somebody cancels their reservation on the dates that you like, uh, they'll actually email you or they'll text you depending on which preference you have uh, selected. And so it, it gives you an early notice that way. But keep in mind, huh. you're not the only person who's probably signed up for such a service. So it is always coming down to how close are you to a computer and how fast can you enter all your information? Yeah, okay, that's certainly a good tip and, and worth checking out for people who are hoping to to camp to book a site maybe maybe late summer. Late summer maybe you got a shot. Um I can certainly understand the wildfire risk here and that's why we brought the campfire ban in. And you mentioned in your report John the number of fires uh, burning right now. For people who are looking for the uh, the up-to-date information there there's a wildfire dashboard online you can check out, right? Yeah, that's right. You just have to Google it. It's quite simple. BC Wildfire Dashboard. And it's the first link that's going to come up. And what this link provides, Mike, is a little information on each specific wildfire, uh, the size of it, the status, if it's out of control or if it's under control. And more importantly, it provides an interactive map. So you don't have to just uh, try and guess where these things are. You can literally see, oh, it's over in Harrison, or maybe there's one uh, close to Prince George. It gives you that interactive map of all BCs so that you can uh, stay up to uh, up up to date and know exactly what's going on yeah that's a good tip for sure and for people who see a while they see a fire how can they report that yeah, it's pretty simple. I mean, not every campsite is going to have cell service, but if you do have cell service and you see something going on, star 5555 on a cell, and uh, that'll get you in contact with those who can take the information and hopefully send out a team right away. Okay, taking a look at um, 20, there are 26 fires up this week what is the current status of the wildfire situation in our province like i think we're actually kind of lucky with, with the situation right now but with this with the conditions that they are right now i wonder if it could get worse here in the days ahead absolutely like the dashboard did say uh, in bold letters 16 new wildfires in the past two days alone not a yeah. coincidence with how dry and how hot it's been mike so as we continue to roll into the summer months it might not get as high as 45 degrees like we saw over the weekend but because conditions are still very hazy uh, it's going to lead to more opportunities and a lot of these sometimes are just natural occurrences many of these wildfires are in fact started by lightning strikes and at that point there's really not much you can do uh, but one thing that we can try and prevent these numbers from growing is to of course implement things like a campfire ban okay yeah officials really urging people to be cautious bringing in that campfire ban 25 active fires in the province right now they don't want to see that go up dramatically but we've had 16 in the last two days as john mentioned all right good to be safe out there john thank you for that thanks mike